Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. I'm joined this week by Aaron Rapport, Maha Rafiatal and Chris Bickerton. We are eight days out from the British general election and today's the day the circus rolls into town, our town, Cambridge. Tonight is the leaders' debate, though one leader we know won't be there, Theresa May. Jeremy Corbyn might, because he thought he did well the other night with Jeremy Paxman, so he's on a roll, keep going with it. But it's Wednesday morning, the debate's tonight, we don't know. We also don't know if they're going to let us in. There was some hope that we might go to the spin room and talk to people about how they saw the debate. Maybe, but apparently we haven't got security clearance yet. So, by the time you hear this, all of that will be known. As of now, it is unknown. And we're going to talk about something else. This election has been very parochial, I think. The interviews and audience questioning of Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn on Monday night, which has had a lot of coverage and analysis, and I think most people feel that they each did about as well as you'd expect them to do. But it was very domestic. Yet, this is the week where Angela Merkel said that America will no longer protect Europe. No one thought to bring that up, which is quite surprising. No one thought to ask Theresa May whether she thought Donald Trump still protected Europe. Let's try and put this in international perspective. Aaron, leaving aside the British election for now, and we'll come back to it. So my sense is that was quite significant. Maybe I'm wrong. And Angela Merkel was saying it in the context of a German election. There are elections all the time. Everyone is saying something because there's an election coming up. So she said to a group of her supporters in Bavaria that what she'd taken away from the G7 summit was that Europe now has to defend itself, basically. And that went down well with them. But if that's true, that's big news. She didn't exactly say Europe has to defend itself, but she said that you couldn't necessarily rely on the United States, and and really you couldn't really rely on the Anglo-Americans, right? Britain got lumped in there as well. And so it's tempting to say, right, well, that's a message designed for a specific audience, but you don't say something of that magnitude in a public place, even if it is to a a somewhat narrow audience, uh, because you know that it's going to travel. I think the big question is whether she is thinking of Trump as a kind of one-off thing, or whether she is thinking that this could represent a realignment in conservative politics in the United States. So in other words, you had the Reagan revolution. Have you now had the Trump revolution? Where even if Trump himself is a pretty flawed vessel, I think, for any kind of political program, because as I think I've established on this program, I don't think he's mentally well. Even if you think that Trump is a flawed vessel for this kind of thing, you might think that his message of economic nationalism and kind of quasi-neo-isolationism might be the path forward for the Republican Party. And if that's the case, right, then this is a long-term problem for a continent that has based its security on a transatlantic pact. And what do you think it was, so far as we can tell, that Trump said or did that persuaded her to say it now? Because, yeah, there's the electoral context. But the word is that she was trying as hard as she could since Trump was elected to find a way to work with him. And it does sound like she now feels she can't. Even though this might sound surprisingly 
basic. There's something about face-to-face diplomacy. So people like Marcus Holmes at William & Mary University have done a lot of research on the psychology and practice of face-to-face diplomacy. And there is a fair amount of research that shows that this has a greater impact on people's beliefs, leaders' beliefs about the other than does diplomacy correspondence that is mediated. And Trump did several things that were meaningful, that were costly signals, to use the language of negotiation and bargaining, right? He did not explicitly endorse Article 5 of the NATO charter, right? The attack against one is attack against all. He did not come out and say that the United States would be committed to the Paris climate change deal, right? So NATO is the institution that's designed to defend the West on a day-to-day basis. Uh, The Paris climate change agreement is an agreement that's designed to protect the world on a long-term basis, and Trump wouldn't commit to either of those. And hearing it from his lips is the thing that made her feel... And that matters. And he also just engaged in otherwise odd behavior. He was kind of bumping around, literally. He pushed the Montenegrin prime minister. He, at the G7 meeting when everybody else was taking a walk, he got in a golf cart and rolled around, which tells me that he's, as well as not being in good mental shape, he's not in very good physical shape. Um, He just behaves oddly. And I imagine that Merkel got to see a lot of those odd ticks and thought to herself, right, not only does this person have a policy agenda that I I disagree with, he's not cognitively reliable. So what then is the significance of this if it does signal whether Trump is a flash in the pan or not? It signals a deep anxiety about European security being articulated by by far the most important and powerful European politician. I think we have to remember that this has been a complaint by the the US government for some time. You know, this goes back over 10 years that the the Europeans have not been taking responsibility for their own security. They've been free riding on US military power. And in some ways, Merkel, I think, was accepting that, confirming that. And Merkel never does anything without calculating very, very carefully the effects of what she says. So the idea that this was a sort of a off-the-cuff speech to just fire up her audience is absolutely antithetical with her character. That's not what it was. So what was she trying to achieve? How decisive was this NATO and G7 summit in shaping what she was about to say? I think she sees that there's an opportunity with the election of Emmanuel Macron in France to push ahead with some sort of Franco-German-led European defence initiative that can revive in some way the political fortunes of a moribund European Union, which I think was what her speech was pointing to. We have to do it ourselves now, and we actually can, possibly. She's also fighting an election against a very well-known, committed, respected Europeanist, Euro-Federalist. So the idea that she could steal the sort of the European mantle from Martin Schulz is a pretty good electoral tactic on her part. So I think all of these things are, are going on. I think, yeah, some of probably her suspicions about Trump were confirmed in the meetings that she had with him for the reasons that Aaron said. Um, but I think there's a kind of a, a longer term story here. One final thing we have to say is the idea that Merkel was going to take on the leadership mantle of the Western alliance herself and put herself forward as doing this was always make-believe. And so the idea that she has in some way destroyed the West by refusing to take on the leadership 
makes no sense because she never intended to lead anyway and she never thought that Germany would play that role. She doesn't want it to play that role. So the fact that she's channeled her initiative into this wider European sort of framework is what she is what she generally does anyway. I do think the domestic German context is interesting because after she gave these comments and then there was, you know, press uproar in a variety of places about it, Schultz came out the next day or the day afterwards and effectively reiterated what she'd said, which I think tells you that this is a view that has a certain amount of broad support, I think, in the German public, right? That So this is a consensus position within Germany. A, that Germany, I think, as Chris says, needs to be completely folded into Europe, and that's the way it advances its interests in the world, but also that there needs to be some kind of European defense initiative or European defense agreement of some kind. I do think that although it has been a grievance of the U.S., vis-a-vis its European allies for a long time, that the U.S. bears most of the financial and military load of NATO. What Trump is doing is different in that it's always been something that's griped about in domestic American politics among people who are interested in defense and foreign policy. It's a very different thing for an American leader to come to Europe and say it to European leaders' faces. And it has always been the case that the U.S. line is, oh, we'd love you to spend more. It would be great if you could spend 2%, but obviously Article 5 is there. It's a complete guarantee. It's very different to come and say, we demand that you spend more, and Article 5 is a maybe. I also think to the flash in the pan question, what I think has been interesting about this is people have been waiting to see whether the career officials serving at lower ranks in the various agencies that deal with American foreign policy and the appointees in the Trump administration who come from career diplomatic or military service would be able to constrain him in some way. And I think it's now becoming very clear that the General Mattises and the H.R. McMasters of the world are not actually able to do that. And that, I think, suggests that there might be some wider shift taking place in conservative politics in the U.S. to allow this kind of isolationism to go through, because they don't seem to be doing anything to stop it. So we're going to bring this back in a second to the parochial British election. But Aaron, you want to say one more thing? The other thing I wanted to say was Andrew Moravchik had a very interesting point on this question of does Europe free ride off of U.S. defense? And Chris will tell you, Andrew Moravchik knows quite a lot about European politics. And he said, the the problem with this argument is that Europe compared to the United States actually does quite a lot in terms of diplomacy, foreign aid, the non-stick, but more of the carrot side of the equation. And then this comes down to a debate over the fungibility, which is a fun word to say, right? The How many uses does military power have compared to softer forms of power? Moravchik's argument was more or less that Europe invests quite a lot in this other form of power and that this complements the United States, right? So his argument was that the point of the NATO alliance is not for Europe to exactly reproduce the capabilities of the United States, rather it's for Europe to complement the power of the United States. So it's comparative advantage if you want to use the But the person language. who is not going to believe that is Donald Trump. No. But I don't think, or many other people as well, I think. I mean, Andrew Moravchik had this phrase where he called Europe a quiet superpower, which by any sort of measure of what you think a superpower may be, seems to ring a little bit hollow. What Maha said was interesting, but if we go back to, I think it was in 2010, the US Defense Secretary gave a speech where he criticized very heavily what he described literally as the demilitarization of Europe. So it is official government policy in the US for some time Mm -hmm. to call out the Europeans for what they actually call the demilitarization of the continent. So, yes, I mean, the US president hasn't sort of said that. It wasn't Obama who said it. But nevertheless, it's a pretty official position. So I think there's a lot of 
continuity here for all of the sort of the antics and the the weirdness of Trump in in Italy? So these are big questions. And it is true that the UK was lumped in with this. So Trump and Brexit, for all the reasons we've discussed, are very different, but they often get lumped together. And in this context, they've kind of been lumped together, which is the Americans don't want to protect us, and the British are walking away in some sense. Now, none of this came up when Corbyn and May were being questioned. So for instance, no one said to Theresa May, what do you think about America's role protecting Europe or indeed the UK? Are you with Trump on this or against it? It just didn't feature. And I know that foreign policy doesn't play much. I mean, we're not going to get a discussion with an audience in the UK about German responses to Trump's attitude to climate change. But it's still really striking. This is supposed to be the Brexit election. And one of the issues around Brexit is precisely this question of whether it will drive Europe to new kinds of unity, new kinds of security, where Britain will fit into that. Unless I've missed it, we're not talking about it at all. We're not even actually, unless I've missed it again, talking about Trump in this election. It's it's very striking. He hasn't really come up at all. As far as Brexit goes, from the opinion polls I've looked at, it looks like in the minds of much of the British electorate that Brexit is a decided issue. Whether you voted leave or remain, for a lot of people, the referendum on uh, the 23rd of June, that was that. And the Liberal Democrats' efforts to kind of broach the issue again in a very serious manner hasn't gotten any traction. And I think the question in people's minds as far as Brexit is concerned now is how will it be executed, not whether or not... But that's what that question is. So if Brexit is a fact, are we now basically going to have to be on Trump's side or Europe's side? I think the, the question is maybe even more specific than that. As things stand, the official position of the government is that if there's not a deal which they like, they would rather have no deal at all. So basically there's this cliff. Either the UK manages to remain on the cliff and does a deal or it jumps off. Now that seems to me a pretty striking claim to make. There's not that much that the government is saying about what it would mean to actually not have a deal. But that's the position that's being you know, put forward. And it was the position on Monday night when Theresa May said it over and over again to Jeremy Paxman, as far as one could tell, that the audience liked best. I mean, she didn't say much. Jeremy Corbyn said a lot that got applause. She didn't say much. But that did work. I mean, I think the problem here is that the government, and particularly Theresa May and her small team of advisers and a few close ministers, are not interested in having a broad public discussion about what that actually means. I think because they're in a tight spot, if they if they negotiate something which doesn't work, then they do have to sign off on no deal. And nobody really knows what that means. So she sticks to what seems like a kind of strong position. We're not going to let ourselves be sort of out-negotiated by the EU. If it's not good enough, we're going to leave. But there isn't really a willingness to go further and say what that might mean. I mean, so Brexit has been, I think Aaron's right, parked almost as an issue, when in actual fact, the most important issue that relates to Brexit is the outcome of Brexit. It's not being discussed in these elections. And I think it's because the Labour Party is thinking the government's weak on other things, so it's not interested in talking about that. And I think Theresa May doesn't know and doesn't really want to explore what that might be publicly because they're actually bluffing. I think they would take a, a weaker deal. And it, it's not for me to criticise the Labour Party strategy in this election because it's so far proving strikingly successful, which is to focus on domestic issues, to make it about education and health, the traditional strengths of the Labour Party. So I, I get why the Labour Party doesn't want to say of Theresa May, doesn't no deal mean basically we've got to throw in our lot with Donald Trump? 
But why is no one saying that? Maybe the Liberal Democrats are saying it and we just can't hear because we can't hear anything they say because the other things Corbyn successfully has done is he's just drowned out all of the possibility of the minor parties getting a look in. I think the Lib Dems made a strategic calculation here that's proving wrong, which is that they thought that it would make sense for them to be the party that was representing hard remainers, which is to say that we will offer some kind of second referendum if we don't like the way negotiations are doing, we'll revoke Article 50 and withdraw the whole process. And that, as Aaron says, isn't polling well, even with people who voted remain. A substantial number of them have just gone, okay, this is over. Now we have to get the best deal possible. So they could have gone for a substantive articulation of what a good deal would look like and chose not to. And that, I think, was a mistake. Labor can't. I mean, it it makes sense for them to campaign on domestic issues, on the welfare state, on services and so forth, because the Tories are vulnerable there. But even if it didn't, I think it's very difficult for Labour to come out and articulate what a Labour-negotiated deal would look like, because the most difficult thing to work out in the negotiations is going to be how much of the four freedoms Britain is willing to accept in exchange for economic access to the market. And on that issue of sort of market access versus immigration and other constraints, Labour's internal constituency is so divided that there's no good position for them to take if they're trying to turn out all of their base. So it's better for them to talk about the things that their base agrees about, which is, you know, the NHS and education and investing in policing and so forth. On the question of Brexit and the negotiating strategy, I think there's two salient strategies that you can use. The one that I would go for is one that I would label avenue shopping, which is basically that you leave your options open, right? So it would be very wise, I think, to court as many possible markets for British, not only economic goods and services, but security cooperation, cultural diplomatic cooperation as possible. Because when you make multiple forums available to yourself, that doesn't give any one actor a lot of leverage over you. So if EU deal falls through, right, it's, it's Trump or, or nothing. That's not the position you want to go in. The position that Theresa May is taking, I think she's pl- trying to play a game of chicken with the European Union. The problem with playing chicken is that if Theresa May is driving a Mini or let's say an Aston Martin, let's upgrade it a bit, the European Union is a Mack truck. And so if neither side swerves, one party is going to be injured, the other party is going to be annihilated. So it's not a, a credible threat, exactly. I view this as a very poor negotiating strategy, but it might be dictated somewhat by domestic political calculation. Yeah, and it seemed to be based on the assumption that she was going to win this election handily Correct. and that she would therefore, as she said at the beginning of the campaign, be negotiating from a position of strength. And now, to use another analogy that I read in the paper, she now looks like someone who's carrying a precious jar across a very slippery floor and she's about halfway across. And when she started out, she just thought, just got to get to the other side and then it'll be good. And now she's halfway across, she has a look of someone who thinks, why on earth did I step out onto this very slippery floor? And that's not a good look for someone who's trying to project strength in a game of chicken. That's right. And she's got to win big for this to look like a success. So we don't know. We'll come on to that at the end. But you know, it's certainly looking less likely than it did even a week ago. The one politician in this campaign who has given a serious, substantive, heavily trailed foreign policy speech is Jeremy Corbyn his response to the Manchester bombing, which was trailed in advance, like many speeches, it was more measured than the initial briefing, which suggested it was going to be a very overt linking of terrorism in the UK with British foreign policy, military adventures abroad. It was more measured in that a lot of it was actually about his revulsion at the terrorist act and his condemnation of that whole way of thinking about politics. 
he's a person who does repudiate all forms of violence, certainly he does now. But it had two very striking features to it, one of which was he did make the link. And he used the phrase war on terror. And actually, almost no one uses that phrase anymore, but he does. And that may be significant. And then also, it had a direct appeal to the armed forces, which was very striking too, in which he said to Britain's soldiers, we will not send you into war unprepared anymore, unresourced, and also without a serious plan for peace. Now, both of these are clearly references to the Iraq war. And he's talking about the war on terror because he wants to link this back in voters' minds to the thing that he knows makes them most uncomfortable about the thing that he most hates, which is Blairism. But it's also really striking to hear Jeremy Corbyn make pledges to Britain's soldiers. I mean, the thought about him normally is that he would never send them into war anyway. I mean, I don't think he's actually talking to them. He's talking to the voters using them as a channel for it. Does that have any force for you? I mean, did it did it strike you as a good speech? I think it tells us a lot about his political world and his political experiences, the shaping experiences. For him, I think the Iraq War loomed so large. The War on Terror, I think, is a phrase that we use so often and then has dropped out, but I think clearly for him was a core part of his political experience. Because after the Manchester attack, he's the only person using that phrase. No one else is. I mean, it was around for a long time after 2001, a long time, but then it did sort of ebb away. The Obama administration actually started referring to in, in budgets overseas contingency operations. <laughs> no, that phrase didn't catch on. <laughs> no. In some ways, the thing about Jeremy Corbyn, he's always got a slightly old-fashioned element to him. He kind of dredges up these phrases from the past, and this was one of them. I don't think it said anything that was particularly surprising, I think. I mean, it seemed that I'd have expected there to be more of those kinds of speeches, and he was the only one who really made the connection and was vilified for it, which I thought was was wrong. He was vilified from predictable quarters, but actually I thought he was given a pretty fair hearing for that speech, actually. This is Talking Politics. My name is David Runciman. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There was a view before this campaign started that Corbyn would just be eviscerated because not only his history, but were anything to happen, he would just be kind of exposed to someone that the British public would not touch with a barge pole. And that really has not happened. For whatever reason, it is not the case that here we are a week and a day out from the election and something about the campaign has left him exposed. If anything, the reverse has happened. Something about the campaign has solidified him in the eyes of the public. I mean, it's deeply mysterious and maybe unexpected, maybe not. But that speech does not look like it was a moment where Corbyn got torn apart. I think not the speech itself, it was the politicisation of the attack as the kind of was the immediate criticism. But I think, you know, at least a couple of days afterwards, people started to say, well, hang on, was one side politicising it? You know, both sides clearly had been politicising it, you know, already. Either everyone was or no one was. That's There's right, no yeah. So I think that's what came through in the end. Right. I'm not that surprised that he's benefiting from the campaign. I think one of the things we've learned over the two leadership campaigns that he's fought is that he's a good campaigner. And he likes being out with voters and taking selfies and whatever. That part of 
politics works for him. So that doesn't entirely shock me. And it should um, be said that Theresa May's distinctive characteristic as a politician, <laughs> she specifically hates hustings, that old fashioned yeah. British word. Yeah. Is that, does that translate the word hustings? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> What's soccer? Is it an Americanism? No. no. <laughs> Good. Just checking. No, we don't uh, have them. You don't have hustings. In every campaign that she's fought, even her first time she stood for parliament, she stood out by refusing to take part in hustings with her Labour opponent. She believes in door-to-door politics, and he loves a campaign rally, mm-hmm. a shouting match, a crowd to sort of frame what he says. Yeah, I mean, he benefits from that. So that part doesn't necessarily surprise me. I think the press coverage could have been could have been much worse, and to the extent that it was critical, I think it has a lot to do with the version of the speech that was trailed to the press the night before that was a little bit more aggressive in its language than the version that he actually gave. The version he gave, had that been trailed, I mean, it's funny because so much of it was a repudiation of Blair's foreign policy, but it reminded me of tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. That that phrasing that I condemn this terror, but also we have to talk about the underlying causes. Yeah, the trailed version sounded more like a Seamus Milne column, which it may well have been, whereas the speech sounded more like actually a national politician in an election. Yep. To who was it for, the stuff about defence? I am surprised that nobody has said this, and I haven't read this anywhere. It made me think primarily of the defense unions um, and the fact that to the extent that a Jeremy Corbyn needs to turn out the union part of the labor base, one of the few industries in Britain that is still heavily unionized and still heavily labor is the defense industries. And so I think part of coming out and saying a labor government will invest more in defense and policing is a way of saying the contracts of the companies for which these unions work are secure. I think that's the vote base for whom that was intended. A labor party or parties on the left can soak the rich and get revenue for military ends just as well as they can do for social welfare ends. So that's correct. Uh, The other thing about Jeremy Corbyn's speech after Manchester was you always put yourself in a dangerous position as a politician when you give a speech like that because you can be accused. And he was accused of saying, well, it's our fault that we were attacked by terrorists. And the problem is that people cannot distinguish very well, I think, between moral culpability on the one hand and basic cause and effect on the other. Right? It would be very odd if countries that engaged in military interventions against terrorists were not more likely to be attacked by terrorists than countries that did not. Right? That would just be an unusual thing from a cause and effect perspective. But that says nothing about the justice of the military campaign being waged against terrorists or the justice of the response that terrorists take. Right? One might be incredibly both or, or, or not either might be incredibly unjust, right? The two don't necessarily speak to one another, but these things get simplified quite a bit for political purposes, especially during campaign season. Yeah, I think he was pretty successful at avoiding being portrayed as someone who said we were to blame for Manchester. I mean, Boris Johnson was wheeled out to try and make that case. But so far, it is bouncing off him. So let's finish then with trying to make sense of what is actually happening in this campaign, but do it with some international perspective on this. So The Guardian is running a story today that, as they put it, Corbyn is feeling the burn, that Bernie Sanders' people are advising him, and that this is starting to resemble some of the momentum that Sanders built up from similarly low expectations. We had the Mélenchon phenomenon in France. I mean, neither of these, so, so Sanders, Mélenchon, it doesn't end with victory, but it gets close. And obviously what these three politicians have in common is that they've been around for a long time. 
saying the same thing for a long time and suddenly the moment seems right for them and the space opens up. Does he strike you as a distinctively British politician or can we compare him to Sanders or, or Mélenchon? There is, I suppose, a common theme, but whether the common theme is an ideological one, I think is something else. I mean, the common theme is people who you expect to not do well or are sort of marginal figures suddenly emerge into the mainstream. And so the expectations are very low, so doing okay appears a great success. But also one of the reasons you don't expect them to do well is for about 30 years, they've not done well. Well, I think, and that's where the... In, ide- in a national sense, they have a local base. But, yeah. but I suppose the, the ideological sort of question is interesting. Is it, is it something about the distinctive positions they're taking, the kind of distinctly left-wing positions that explains their success? I think there are a lot of differences um, in all of the three cases. Corbyn has sort of moderated a lot of his positions. I mean, this was clear in the interview that he gave with Paxman, where the manifesto corresponds in some way strongly, but often quite weakly, to his core beliefs. So there's something different that's being offered. Yeah, and as we've said before, the manifesto is nothing like the longest suicide note in history from 83. It's like the longest shopping list in history. It's just a sort of wish list of things that might appeal to the voters. Sure, based on, I think, an obvious compromise between some of what Corbyn would have wished to put in there and what was eventually acceptable. So I'm not sure. Also, the national context seemed to me so different as well. So the only common thread that I can really tease out is the surprise at these figures actually managing to, you know, to hold some sort of firm political ground in the course of a campaign. Well, does it feel at all to you like Bernie mania? I, I think there's not a lot of mania around it at the moment. Not really. Um, right. I mean, first of all, I mean, if there was mania that was during the first leadership exactly. election, right, this, when, this in 2015. But, but I also think one of the things about this comparison that's weird is the relationship that each of these three people have to political party. In that Corbyn, for the long period where he was not particularly prominent in national politics, nevertheless remained a member of the Labour Party in, you know, fairly good standing, right? And, and, and that, I think, is very different from somebody like Sanders, who until the moment he decided to run for president has never been a Democrat. And by the way, having now finished his campaign, it doesn't sit as a Democrat. And somebody like Mélenchon, who was willing to walk away from the Socialist Party when he decided that it, you know, had moved too far to the center, right? And that's very different, I think, from Corbyn playing apparently a very long game to sit inside labor until the moment where there was some room for the left to come back. And the moment when the two-party system reasserts itself. I mean, he's, I'm not saying he's lucky because I think he has turned out to be more skillful with people around him than we thought. But if the strategy was to hang in there till the moment where his chance would arise, which would be specifically a general election fought on domestic policy issues, which divides the electorate on traditional two-party lines, of course it was worth staying in the Labour Party because under the British system, there is no other way to get anywhere. I was just going to say the biggest difference in my mind between Sanders and Corbyn is Sanders is very popular in the United States in opinion polls, much more popular than the Democratic Party is. Corbyn, it's the opposite. Corbyn is less popular than the Labour Party, right? The Labour Party in, in most polls is pretty much almost now, according to you, got neck and neck with conservatives, whereas Corbyn trails well behind. Corbyn, if anything, could be argued to be a drag on Labour. No, and if this is close, but Theresa May still wins, that will be the argument that's made, which is Corbyn lost the Labour Party a winnable election. But I think we've also veering from one extreme to the other, which is we started off with this 
I think, exaggerated expectation around the strength of the Tory party. Um, and we've now moved to this idea of the sort of the, the Corbyn surge. In a two-party system, if you have a move away from one party, then almost inevitably there's some drift towards the, the other party. And so I think what's happening around the Labour Party really tells us more about the brittle and shallow nature of Tory party support that actually, as you say, Theresa May was taking a big risk, bigger maybe than she thought. It's turning out to be quite complicated and she has to be very careful about where she moves because a false move really can, as we've seen, really can be catastrophic for her. I was always sceptical about this idea that the Tory party was had suddenly rejuvenated itself and was going to come out with massive, massive victories. It was always going to be close if you accept that these two parties are historically challenged now in ways that they haven't been before. And if you step back, you look at the 2015 general election, which the Conservatives won, but they it was kind of a surprise. It's not that long ago, right? We do have a tendency, even people who study politics for a living, probably to overreact to short-term events and short-term turns of fate and forget kind of the macro perspective that Chris is talking about. But even on the current polling, the Tory party is still polling around 43-44%, which is seven, eight points up on where they were last time. They are adding votes. The surprise is that Labour is adding votes. And it may be that the key issue in this campaign is the squeezing of the Liberal Democrats. And one thing that Corbyn has done, but I think it's also a function of the social media age, and it's one of the few things that connects Corbyn with Trump, which is that he's just been the story. I mean, he has just drowned out the possibility of other politicians getting a hearing, particularly Tim Farron, who is more or less just vanished in this campaign. When Corbyn does something well, when he does something badly, when he fluffs his lines on Women's Hour, when he stands up to Jeremy Paxman, when he smiles, when he talks about his allotment, he's everywhere. Um, And it is one of the weird things about the internet age, which is it, it hasn't dispersed news, it's condensed it and concentrated it. It's actually harder you need to get a kind of bandwagon going and you need to start getting everyone paying attention to you. And at that point, you're on a roll. And this is the May-Corbyn election. It is striking that everyone else... Nicola Sturgeon is finding it really hard to get a hearing. She gave her big indie ref speech yesterday. I'm sure in Scotland, she's getting a full hearing. But in the last election, we were paying attention to her down south. Are we now? You are all shaking your heads, rightly, because we're not. But it is it is one of the striking features of this campaign. I think most people are as familiar with Tim Farron as I am with the expression hustings. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a good thing or a bad thing. I can tell how you how fondly you feel about the expression hustings. I'm just not familiar with it. And neither are most people with Tim Farron. It looks like the decisive moment was Theresa May being forced to change her mind about a single pledge in her manifesto. Partly because it was the second time it had happened, there was also a switch after the budget. And it does seem to have undermined the strong and stable idea. And if it does remind me of anything in British politics, it is Gordon Brown's decision not to hold an election after he'd heavily trailed that he might, and that that was going to signal the kind of politician he was. And it's really hard to come back from that. Not, I think, because people particularly care about politicians changing their mind on specific issues, but she was projecting a sense of herself And when you puncture that, it only takes one little hole in the balloon and and the air just starts to seep out. I know that image doesn't work because air doesn't seep out of balloons. It tends to come out in a rush, but you know what I mean. And it may be that that was the moment where it started to go wrong for her. And we don't have much experience of politicians successfully coming back from that. In a way, it is a one-chance game here, which is you create an image of strength 
when that goes, she could really be in trouble. I think the what lay behind that mistake is quite an interesting one, which is the campaign was based around her personality, kind of strong and stable corresponds to her. And her extraordinary popularity in the polls, which is going down. But it's, yeah, I mean, I'm, I think the balloon image doesn't work. It's not disappearing in a rush. But it it's is trickling quite, away. But it is quite heavily premised on the sort of preceding question about who you would rather have negotiating the UK's exit of the EU, who's more competent in that respect. But you did have within the broader Tory party as well, conflicts around how to position itself ideologically. And the so-called dementia tax was clearly a pitch to a certain part of British society to try and shift the sort of the, the appeal of the Tory party across party lines that failed quite dramatically. Um, but it also it does reflect this division, I think, within the Tory party about whether it can have this broad appeal and steal as many Labour voters as possible, whether it can't. Um, and so there's all this talk about the Tories not being business friendly. There's a lot of disquiet around in traditional kind of Labour strongholds, which I think is another reason why she's less sure-footed than she might be. And the other bizarre thing was that the thing that happened before that that was causing people to think, do they really know what they're doing, was the big fox hunting announcement that they're going to repeal the ban, which is really hard to square with some of the other things that they're trying to do. It did look like they were kind of confused. I was going to mention the fox hunting thing, because I think one of the reasons that the reversal on social care was so damaging is that she's a politician who doesn't really have a lot of strong policy views that she's associated with. There aren't a lot of ideological commitments there. No, there are practical Um, commitments to get immigration down, and uh, that's it. And and her defining feature, and I think, I mean, David, it was you who wrote this in the LRB, and I thought it was sharp, that she makes commitments and then her defining feature as a politician is that she feels bound by those commitments long after they become practically indefensible, right? So that the whole rest of the Tory cabinet had decided this migration target was a joke, but Theresa May is going for it in more and more draconian ways. And so for her, it's particularly damaging because there isn't any other set of policy views that she can fall back on if the strong and stable, I don't change my mind, this lady's nut for turning, goes away. And that's why they've ended up going for these kind of marginal very bizarre fringe issues. We're going to talk about fox hunting now, and this, which is relevant to a very small number of people, um, and seems very. But much it like really an issue from annoys quite a large number of people. That's the surprising thing about it. A lot of people do not like what that signals. First off, I was not aware that the fox hunting ban hadn't been lifted. I've been going out at night on horseback with my beagles. <laughs> you're lucky you're not in jail. About, yeah, with my cricket bat. I think that's how it's done. You just kind of try to get up next to them like a polo horse and whack them. Um, <laughs> Uh, in all seriousness, it seems to me that if you had the attitude that you're very, very, very likely to win an election and win it big, you feel free to put in a lot of stuff in a manifesto that you might not have otherwise because you think you have the slack to do it. And you're also thinking about the future. You're thinking about the manifesto binding the civil service and binding the House of Lords. Um, It's the old song lyric by Janis Joplin, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. And that can refer to people like what we thought Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour Party was, which is, well, we've got nothing left to lose. Let's put in a bunch of maybe radical stuff in the manifesto and see where we go. But also, right, you feel like you have nothing left to lose if you're well ahead. And so you can put a lot of stuff in a manifesto. It's when you're what we call a marginal candidate, right, kind of 50-50 coin flip candidate that you tend to be a lowercase c conservative with your your policy pledges. And so I think perhaps the freedom has benefited the Labour Party, but it's it's proved not so great for me and the Conservatives. So before we get carried away with the Corbyn surge, one lesson I took from 2015, actually there are two lessons. So one is a general lesson, which I think still holds, 
which is people do change their mind in election campaigns, but they often change it back. And there is some evidence that polling a month before is more accurate than the polling a day before. But we'll have to see because the old rules don't apply in lots of areas, so maybe not in that. And the other one from 2015 is when you ask people how you're going to vote, you get a range of answers, not all of them truthful. A better guide is asking people, who do you want to be prime minister? And Theresa May is still a long way ahead on that, as Aaron said. The gap has closed. It's closed markedly, but it's not that one is not a toss-up by any means. And it's particularly a huge margin among people over 65. And those people vote. So let's not get carried away yet. Maybe we'll get carried away next week. Do join us again for that. It'll be the day before the vote. And uh, I'll be joined by Helen Thompson again and Chris Brooke. And we're going to maybe say what we think is going to happen. Tonight, there will be a leaders debate. And when you hear this, maybe someone will have said something interesting, or maybe not. Join us again next week. Until then, my name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Should we, should we, cl- should we clarify for animal rights activists that I actually don't kill foxes? <laughs> via, via no force, animals were harmed in the making of this trauma. podcast. <laughs> I, I have leather that. shoes, but oh. I don't wear fur. Maybe we can leave that oh, in. God. Okay. Uh, when was the bank holiday? Was it? I have no idea what we did. I can't remember. Genuinely. Quarter to time with family. Maybe. Happy day. I was in Paris. I was learning about tires. Sweating profusely over the water lilies. I hope it didn't run too much. And I learned that uh, the Bridgestone Tire Company is in fact a Japanese company. And that Ishibashi means stone bridge in Japanese. And And Aaron mainly wants to say Ishibashi. I like the sound of it. I think it rolls out the tongue rather well. I kind of am thinking about getting a cat and naming it Ishibashi. Does it contest for Waffle Iron, do you think? Uh, It does, actually, yeah. It contests for Trash Weasel, which is my favorite name for raccoons. And I did spend some time while it was sunny in the garden repotting some things. It may or may not have been successful because then it rained quite a bit and I think I may have waterlogged them slightly. Repotting is a nice word. <laughs> Just saying. Bickerton. Um, it's a long time ago. Quality family time. You said that with much more conviction. With David's me. family. <laughs> 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 Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.